sharks, piranha, spiders, frogs, snakes, wolves, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Sounds like it's time for episode 109 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie foreign side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your They're Coming, They're Coming host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, screenwriter and book author, C. Courtney Joyner, who has chosen as his film, Alfred Hitchcock's classic, The Birds, while I have chosen Byron Haskins' guilty pleasure, The Naked Jungle, both films about animals attacking humankind. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Courtney, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Well, I've been slogging along through the movie and TV jungles, I guess, since uh, the early 80s. I have, I don't know, what, 30-something movies behind me as a screenwriter and a couple as director, and then lots of film journalism, which is uh, what I've always loved to do and what I'm still doing now. And hope, now that with the strike ending, get back to some screenwriting also. Awesome. That's great. Sounds very exciting. So it's great to have you on. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Birds. First, some information about the film The Birds is a natural horror film released in 1962. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and written by Evan Hunter, adapted from the short story of the same name by Daphne du Maurier, originally published in 1952. It stars Rod Taylor, Jessica Tandy, Suzanne Plachette, Tippi Hedren, Veronica Cartwright, Ethel Griffiths, Charles McGraw, Ruth McDevitt, Lonnie Chapman, Joe Mantell, Doodles Weaver, Malcolm Atterbury, John McGovern, Carl Swinson, Richard Deacon, Elizabeth Wilson, and William Quinn. Melanie Daniels is a socialite who has a reputation of leading a scandal-ridden life that fills the tabloids. While Melody spends her time working at a pet shop, Mitch Bruner comes in looking for a pair of love birds for his sister's upcoming birthday. He leaves the shop without the birds after a confrontation with Melody. Melody and Tree goes down to Mitch's hometown of Bodega Bay with the birds. But upon arriving, the town becomes more and more subjected to unexplained bird attacks. So before talking about the movie proper, let's talk some about films where the conflict is against animals of some sort. There are some critics who say there are four main conflicts in art. Man against man, man against himself, man against society, and man against nature. And this last one is the one we'll be covering today. And in doing research, I came across a term that was new to me, and that is natural horror, a subgenre of horror film that features conflicts against forces of nature, mainly animals and plants, that pose a threat to the characters. What do you think is the appeal of these sort of films? I think the biggest appeal is that the threat, unlike, say, some magnificent actor in a Jack Pierce makeup or something, is something we're encountered in our lives. We've all encountered a vicious dog, or we know what the household cat is supposed to be like, or we've been to the zoo, or have had contact with uh, wild animals in another way. Are you a hunter? Are you just someone who hikes and you come across a bear or a snake in the garden? It's nothing that's uh, supernatural. 
And I think that's why they're effective and why people relate to them. I certainly agree with all that. I think there's something innate in this that makes us afraid as well, because ever since caveman days, we have always had to be on the lookout for danger from the outside. And animals always posed a serious threat to our existence. And if we aren't afraid of them to some degree, we would probably have died out as a species. But I think also there is an idea of conflict with something that doesn't think the same way we do. There are smart animals, but in a fight, they're more instinctual than logical, and that also scares us. How do you fight a foe that doesn't play by the same rules you do? Because they can't. It can be a very existential conflict because the attacks often don't make rational or logical sense, especially here in the birds, but also in the naked jungle. It's unclear why the moribunda, as they're called, appear every 20 years or so. Well, of course, it's contrast to a movie like The Naked Jungle. The Naked Jungle is, in fact, derived, of course, from the wonderful short story, uh, Lonergen and the Ants. But it is about a phenomenon that is, in fact, real. The birds, Daphne du Maurier was inspired by an incident where overnight a town was basically besieged by birds and everyone woke up to find all these dead birds on their lawn and on their cars and just everywhere. And there was no explanation for it. So there was some, if you will, footprint of truth with Daphne du Maurier, but she took it many steps further, whereas the naked jungle jungle could literally also be about stampeding elephants or a lion or tiger attack, because that is about the real threat of nature uh, and uh, animals in the wild in uh, South America. When did you first see the film, and what did you think upon first seeing it? I first saw the birds on TV, probably, I don't know, maybe 1970 or so. 68, 69. I seem to remember I was about 10. I love Suzanne Plachette in the movie. I'd actually got a chance to talk to her about it once. As a little um, horror fan that really struck me about the birds was it was bloody. That kind of shocked me, I guess, and uh, intrigued me, including the uh, terrifying, awful image of the farmer in the house with his eyes pecked out when uh, Jessica Tandy goes into uh, her neighbor's home or when Suzanne Plachette is killed on the front walk of her house, especially for an Alfred Hitchcock movie, including Psycho. It's kind of unusual to be that explicit. You think it still holds up? Oh, absolutely. People now, because of the mat work and whatever, which at the time was revolutionary, and now because you do see mat lines and things like that, but there are moments, still wonderful cinematic moments in the birds that still shock people and are visually iconic. Uh, all of the crows on Jungle Gym beside the school, the incredible editing of the moment when everyone's trapped in the cafe and the fellow lights the cigarette and he gets hit by the birds and then the explosion happens. And it's just visually spectacular the way uh, Hitchcock lays that out. I always love the alternating close-ups of Tippy Hedren following the fire along the line of gasoline on the ground until uh, the car blows up. I'm like you. I first saw it in the 1970s when it appeared on TV. I probably even saw it in black and white, though I'm not sure. I like the film in many ways. The concept is great, and it's wildly entertaining. But here I must in full disclosure say that I think this is the best Hitchcock film made from a terrible, terrible script with terrible acting from the leads. And we'll get into that more later. But I can't deny how well it works. And I always enjoy it when I see it. And yes, I think it still holds up. It still works very well. You've mentioned a couple of scenes you've liked. Do you have any other favorite scenes or what are some of your favorite scenes? 
I always like the attack on the uh, children's party because of the balloons popping. That's always wonderfully effective moment. Too, of course, in the house when all the sparrows come down the chimney and just fill the room like a tornado. And of course, a very infamous Tippy going upstairs to the attic, sees the breach in the ceiling, and all the seagulls come in and attack her, which legendarily uh, Hitchcock had her under the netting and they were throwing live birds at her. But there are also a lot of mechanical birds. I think that's been exaggerated quite a bit. The birds just has some just wonderful visuals throughout, especially in one of the great match shots of all time is, again, going back to the scene where the uh, gas station explodes, you have an aerial shot and the birds fly in front of the camera. It's a matte shot, but it's wonderful as they're observing their own chaos they've created, the puny humans below. I think you're absolutely right there. You get the feeling that these birds, they're not your usual birds. They're planning, they're gathering they have a point of view. You've mentioned pretty much all my favorite scenes as well. The school attack and the crows gathering on the jungle gym, the attack at the diner gas station, when the mother goes to a neighbor's farm in the finale. But the best written scene for me, and perhaps then the most effective one, next to the crow scene at school, is the scene in the diner after the, that attack. This scene is incredibly well written with a lot of wit. It's the smartest scene in the film. And it has that wonderful moment when the ornithologist is talking about how we are more danger to birds than birds are to us. And in the background, the waitress places two orders of fried chicken. Oh, yeah. So that's Joe Mantell and uh, get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. Charlie McGraw is the grumpy sea captain stomping around. Bill Quinn as the uh, businessman. So it's always nice to see Bob Newhart's father-in-law. I love that scene. I think it's wonderful. And that is also the scene where they accuse Tippy Hedren. This all started because you arrived. You're evil. You're evil. Right. And we always want to find a scapegoat when we yep. don't understand why things are happening. The director is Alfred Hitchcock. Full disclosure, he is my favorite filmmaker of all times. We have covered him four times before this on the podcast. Most recently, the last podcast, we talked Rear Window and combined it with a short film about love because both are about voyeurs and voyeurism. So I'm not sure I have that much to say about him that I haven't already said. So let's hear your opinion of Hitchcock. Do you have a favorite film as well? And where do you think The Birds lands in his oeuvre? And what do you think of his directing here? Actually, my favorite Hitchcock movie is Notorious. For The Birds... This just shows just how canny he was. As we know, he was in real serious conflict with Paramount Pictures and had made that special deal that they could release Psycho, but they could not own it. Psycho, of course, was an enormous hit. His TV show was just burning down the airwaves. To follow it up, first of all, with a color horror movie through his newly minted deal at Universal was remarkably astute because the film was a smash. Now, the follow-up movies after The Birds, that kind of was the last chapter of the career. And unfortunately, that includes Torn Curtain and Topaz and things that uh, did not do as well. He had had that remarkable string at Paramount with Rear Window, Vertigo, which as we know, did not do well commercially. And then also he had been at Warner Brothers and been very successful there. But Hitchcock had, if you will, the films were so famous that sometimes their fame did not match what the commercial realities were 
when they were released. A movie like The Trouble with Harry, for example, which is a wonderful little movie, but it did not do very well, as opposed to, say, something like the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much and then his solo effort at MGM, which was a smash, North by Northwest. So Hitchcock was like every other director. It didn't matter if it was John Ford or Howard Hawks or Frank Capra or whoever. There were great commercial successes, but there were also spotted commercial failures, even if they were artistic successes. He's so rarefied, and rightly so, but uh, he was a practical man, uh, a practical filmmaker. So the choice to do The Birds after Psycho was just absolute double-barrel force from him and started his deal at Universal and just the highest echelon it could possibly be for his theatrical work. Sadly, again, nothing came near to that success with the four or five films he did after The Birds, but still, that was the, the benchmark. Um, I think it's extremely well-directed, especially from a technical point of view. And as many classic scenes, it's, I think, as you hinted out or said, it's somewhat perverse at times. And we'll start talking about the screenplay next, which is my biggest problem, because I felt he couldn't quite do enough about the script or he couldn't quite do enough about the acting. I'm not sure which it is. I suspect it's both. But one of Hitchcock's problems is that if he doesn't have good or at least competent actors, there's very little that he can do to compensate for that. But the screenplay is by Evan Hunter. And what do you think of the screenplay? You already know what I think of the screenplay. <laughs> well, Evan Hunter was primarily a novelist, a very good one, but specialty was police procedurals. I like the script, but this is a very difficult thing to expand that short story into a feature-length screenplay, because really what it is is just taking this core idea from Daphne de Maurier's story, taking it to a feature length. Now, of course, when Hitchcock adapted her before, you ended up with something like Rebecca. That's a whole different story because that's a, a superb novel uh, that he translated to the screen. This was not uh, an easy, if you will, process to take something this slight as that short story and turn it into a screenplay. Yeah. And he took a different tack than the short story, which, which is much bleaker, if that's possible, and much more serious. Here, in trying to get a handle on how to do it, Hunter came up with the idea of starting out as a screwball comedy, which was having a sort of renaissance at the time with films like Some Like It Hot. And Hitchcock liked the idea of a comedy becoming a horror film. I'm not convinced that that works, but my biggest issue is that I can never get emotionally involved in the personal problems of these characters. Or as I stated, I don't care if you have an Oedipus complex, the world is coming to an end. And that's all I cared about. The thing is, too, any studio that employed him, he was very aware of what else was going on at that studio. When you talk about starting with the comedy, what were the big powerhouse movies that Universal was making at that time. It was the Doris Day Rock Hudson movie. So in many ways, The Birds is kind of a, an interesting answer to those films. In fact, shares, at least in its opening moments, visually the same look as those movies. Of course, many Universal films during the 1960s had a tendency to look alike, whether Russell Meddy was the DP or whoever it was, Milton Krasner or somebody. But there was kind of a house style to Universal product at that time. And the birds also fit that house style. It's certainly at least for the first 20 minutes or so of the movie. At first, Hitchcock and Hunter toyed with the idea 
that the townspeople all have a guilty secret and the birds are an instrument of punishment for that. But that was abandoned in favor of beginning with the romantic comedy element. But there are always indications that Hitchcock was not pleased with the script. He got feedback from various people, including Hume Cronin, who was married to Jessica Tandy, and wrote Hunter that the script, particularly the first part, was too long, contained insufficient characterization in the two leads, and that some scenes lacked drama and audience interest. And I've read that Hitchcock later conceded that Hunter just couldn't quite bring the characters to life. Hitchcock also cut the last 10 pages of the screenplay, maybe more to create a more ambiguous ending. And at first he wanted the film to end without a the end card, but the studio forced him to include one. But talking about the ending, there has been a lot of talk about it and the various ways they proposed it. And what do you think of the ending and these other ideas they had? Well, I like the ambiguity of the ending as it exists now. I can tell you, I did a summer Universal class when I was at USC, and I took a matte painting lectures from Albert Whitlock, and I saw that famous matte that he did of the Golden Gate Bridge with the birds all over it. Oh my gosh, I mean, just to see it, because of course, in the Donald Spoto books and things like that, there's the storyboard of that shot, but I hadn't realized it had gone that far. See, he had executed something for Hitch to see, and of course, they collaborated so many times. I can understand why Universal and Hitch and everybody else said, well, that just might be too much. The audience probably had to leave with some sort of sense of relief, even though they didn't know what it was, rather than to see the characters you know, literally drive into their doom or the doom of the entire world. Uh, I like the ambiguity of it because it was unusual. From what I understand, originally Hunter had them arrive at the Golden Gate Bridge. It was covered with birds and they attacked the car. And there's, I think the car gets turned over or something. Then I heard the ending was just that they arrived at the Golden Gate Bridge and it is filled with birds. But I've also read Hitchcock saying that his intention was always that it was an isolated attack on the small town. As years go on, people sometimes don't quite remember or they change their minds, so they rewrite what they thought at the time. I like the one where they arrive at the bridge where it's just filled with birds. I thought that would be a really powerful ending. You might be right, it might be too much and perhaps even would have hurt the box office. But apparently, from what I understand, this was abandoned because it was too expensive and everyone was just too tired to do it at that point. Oh um, yeah, it's, it had so many people working on the film. Uh, including, as we know, of iWorks from Disney. If you will, the burden of making a movie with that many optical effects in it, where in some cases it was every shot in a sequence, that was a hell of a lot of work. Uh, I can see why at, at the end of the day, they said, uh, let's, you know, and also too, as we said, the idea of the message that the uh, shot of the Golden Gate Bridge completely covered with birds, what that sends and I can understand, like, no, let's step back from that. Exactly. I think you have a good point there. We mentioned Daphne du Maurier, and the screenplay is based on the short story that she wrote in 1952. But it was also inspired by an actual event, a massive bird attack on Capitola in California in 1961. Quote, Capitola residents awoke to a scene that seemed straight out of a horror movie. Hordes of seabirds were dive-bombing their homes, crashing into cars, and spewing half-digested anchovies onto lawn. It wasn't until years later that it was discovered that the birds had eaten toxic algae, but no one knew it at the time. They just had no explanation 
Yeah, that incident, as we said, that was a huge propelling factor for Hitchcock to make the movie. But you're right. I mean, absolutely, there was no explanation. Nobody had any idea why in the world uh, this had happened. And that had uh, captured a lot of news interest. I could see that if you're thinking about doing The Birds, and then all of a sudden you read about this attack, you're going, okay, got it. Let's go. Yep. But there are best differences in the short story and the film. Uh, We shall see both the birds and the naked jungle have a romance manufactured explicitly for the film. The short story revolves around a farmer living in Cornwall. The birds start attacking immediately in the story, and the farmer does figure out that they only attack when the tides come in. But it ends pessimistically like the movie with no hope in sight and the central character's wife hoping the Americans will come and save them again. It was written seven years after the war, after all. Du Maurier hated the film. Yeah, I know. She was not pleased with it at all. She trusted Hitchcock. They had a very good uh, relationship overall, not only because they were resetting it in California and all the rest of it, but also, too, I think that Hitch was going towards a new sensibility of violence in movies that was yet to be explored and would be, <laughs> obviously, very intensely, especially in the in the 60s and 70s. And I'm sure that did not line up with her sensibilities. Well, you mentioned that Hunter was a author known for crime novels, and he had a series of uh, novels called the 87th Precinct novels written under a pseudonym Ed McBain. He was so prolific that he started using a few different pen names. He also wrote the novel that was adapted into Blackboard Jungle. It might be noted that he was the first author on Marnie, but he and Hitchcock had a falling out over the rape scene. Hunter didn't like it, but Hitchcock wanted it. So Hitchcock fired him and hired Jay Preston Allen, who claimed the rape scene was the reason Hitchcock even wanted to do the movie. And I sort of add this because when we get to the actors, we will be revisiting, as you mentioned, how Hedren, to be Hedren, was treated by Hitchcock, both in this movie and in Mark. But what do you sort of think of as the theme of the movie? And or because it's so close together about the causes, because people keep trying to come up with the causes or what is driving it or why are the birds attacking? Maybe not the realistic reason, but the metaphor that Hitchcock is going for. I don't think he was really going for one, quite honestly. Hitchcock was so diabolical in his mind at times that he probably got the biggest kick in the world out of the re-examination of his movies and people finding meanings there that didn't necessarily exist because it meant that people were talking about his movies. Uh, And he says as much to Francois Truffaut. And so I think with The Birds, certainly it is in great horror film, if you will, fashion. Uh, But even going further than that, there is no reason that we can hold on to. There is no explanation we can hold on to. There was not going to be Simon Oakland showing up, giving us this whole dissertation of, man against nature and the environment and this, that, and the other. No, we don't know, and we are not going to find out. In a way, that makes us the most helpless of all of Hitchcock's victims and absolutely everything, including Janet Lee. And I think that's one of the things that I love most about the movie is, hey, this is happening. There's no guy in a laboratory creating mutant birds. There's nobody coming in and saying, well, here we go. The bird seed was, you know, filled with radioactivity or something like that. Nope. Uh-uh. And I think that was intensely clever. I know that uh, Evan Hunter and Hitchcock, while they were putting together the script, I'm sure that they came onto scenes like that or 
Did Hume Cronin say, guys, I think we do need to identify the problem or at least maybe have our hero work towards a solution or something like that? I believe that Hitchcock would have rejected any explanation just out of hand because it makes it scarier that there is no explanation. So I agree with you. There is no explanation. And that gives the movie more power. For me, Hitchcock was always what I call a pre-existentialist. His films always start out existentially in which a person is thrust into a world that makes no sense. It's not logical. And the central character has to accept his sort of situation in order to keep going. But his films never ended existentially because everything always gets resolved and the status quo returned. This movie is a big exception. It's existentially absurd and the status quo never returns. No, it doesn't. And remember, going back to, of course, the famous production history of Suspicion, where, in fact, Cary Grant is the psychopath. So they thought no one would accept him, Cary Grant, as a psychopath. No way. We are not doing that. So instead, we get the shot of Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine driving off in that little convertible, happy as clams. One could say that there is a sort of logic to the film and that it starts out with birds trapped in cages. But by the end, it's the characters who are trapped in all sorts of metaphorical cages, a house, a diner a telephone booth. So it's nature taking revenge and giving us a taste of her own medicine. Oh, I'd agree with that. It was a great visual place to start because we do see the lovebirds consistently. Angela Cartwright insists on bringing them along. They haven't done anything, remember? And of course, I always love the show. It's done with mechanicals, but it's still wonderful where they're on the floor of Tippi Edren's sports car and they lean when she's driving up the curvy road and they lean in the different directions as the car turns. You're absolutely correct. The birds start in cages and people end up trapped in the cages. And by driving away in that car, surrounded by birds, they're still trapped because they can't get out of the car. So many people say it's Melanie intruding into this small town that causes the attack. But for me, it's more myth and it's unresolved issues with all the women in his life that would more likely be causing the attacks. His mother doesn't want to share him with anyone. His ex who stayed to be close to him, but the love is unrequited. He has a younger sister that he has to take care of. And then Melanie, his new love, but she has to work through all the baggage that Mitch carries with him. And it's sort of ironic because he actually has more baggage than Melanie, though he sort of accuses Melanie of the one with all the baggage. And the birds attacking resolve all these issues in some way. Well, I guess that's true. I don't know that he wanted to get rid of Suzanne Plachette. As I said, I still think he's Mitch crazy for dumping Suzanne Plachette. But that's just me. That is a weakness of the movie is that the Mitch Brenner character does, in fact, does have this baggage. But it does at least give the character a little bit more provenance than the Tippi Hedren character, who we just know, you know, was caught naked in a fountain in Rome. And, you know, all these things that we find out about because she was this spoiled heiress who uh, lived the high life in Europe. But beyond that, she gets attacked, of course, and that brings out all this uh, maternalism from Jessica Tandy. This one thing, because I've been Tippy Edgerton was beautiful. Of course, she was a model and all that. But you're still a little puzzled as to why Mitch is so drawn to her. Because she yes. has that brittle personality and it doesn't make her the most, you know, approachable person. Tippy Edgerton. She's very shallow and yeah, narcissistic. Yes. 
And he's this lawyer, the successful lawyer. So in a way, yes. I mean, in a romantic comedy, you sort of have this spark, but I don't want to get back so much into criticizing the actress, but it's Tippi Edren and Rod Taylor just don't really work together. I know they wanted Cary Grant and Grace Kelly at first, but then thought, no, they'll overshadow the birds. Or at least they would be better actors. And I think at that time, they were both too old. Grace oh, Kelly was also married, got yes. married to Prince Rainier. She was now the Princess of Monaco and all of that stuff. One comment and uh, Hitchcock actually made about Rod Taylor, and this goes more to the writing than it to, to Rod Taylor, although he had kind of a oh, his own presence on screen, certainly very powerful masculine presence in movies like Dark of the Sun. But uh, Hitchcock said that he lacked humor. And... I see that. Taylor, even in comedies like The Glass Bottom Boat, for example, Rod Taylor is an observer and kind of has wry comments and things like that. But he was not fully engaged as a comedic actor. And again, I keep going back to say someone like Doris Day. But imagine the birds if it had starred James Garner. Would have been better. Yes. I think so. Yes. Do you have a favorite performance? I think Angela Cartwright. I think she's wonderful in it. But I love Suzanne Plachette in it. And Jessica Tandy, because she was so skilled, that kind of wrapped up, withdrawn, tight mother who can't step away from her own grief of the death of her husband and whatever, because I've known women like that. I think she personified it just perfectly. And again, we have that wonderful scene in the cafe with all those terrific character actors. Charlie McGraw was pretty big guy at that point, and he just has this one scene in the movie. It had his uh, film noir stardom, the narrow margin and everything. But there he is in this one scene. I'm not trying to get everybody excited. I'm not saying you are, Mitch. I love that moment. And as you said, the thing with the fried chicken and, and all these wonderful people, Joe Mantell, who, if everybody listening knows, has the famous forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. I certainly agree. For me, Jessica Tandy just steals the movie. She transcends the screenplay, and she has that scene where she discovers the farmer with the eyes plucked out. And that's realistic, because birds, when they attack, they go for the eyes first. Oh, absolutely. And I do like the characters at the diner like you do. It's a wonderfully written scene. But I suppose we should mention here Hitchcock's treatment of Hedren, because he could be cruel at times to actresses. But Hedren said that working with him during the words was pleasant, and she owed him a lot. He was very helpful to her. But yes, she did have problems with the telephone booth scene where she got cut. And she said that Hitchcock lied about how the final scene was going to be, and that he went on much longer than uh, he said it was, and used more live birds than he said it was. During Marnie, Hedron claimed that Hitchcock became obsessed with her and even tried to coerce her into having sex. And when she refused, he ruined her career because he had signed her to a seven-year contract and she claimed her career never survived that. However, my perspective is I don't think it would have survived either way. But yeah, if you sign someone to a seven-year contract and won't let her do anything and she won't work for him because of the sexual abuse, that's going to be hard to recover from. Well, problem with so many of those claims is that Tippi Hedren herself went back and forth on that stuff. She would contradict herself at times. I'm sure there were some, there were problems, but also the whole thing of Hitchcock not allowing it. Tippi Hedren did. She worked on Universal TV shows. She's in The Countess from Hong Kong. This idea that she was kept up on a perch 
I don't know if that always completely jibes with everything. And of course, she made other movies like The Herod Experiment and things like that. And there is also that boils down to, well, how was Tippi Hedren as an actress and audience connectivity to her? Honestly, audiences didn't respond the way that Universal and Hitchcock wanted them to. Well, I certainly didn't. I think she's awful in this. I think she's awful in Marnie. So I agree that that may be a part of it, too. She's just not a very good actress, and there wasn't anything much that could be done about it. Well, I I should tell a little story, Suzanne Plachette, related to me. They had wanted her to play Lil, the good-looking socialite in Marnie, the ex-sister-in-law. She knew that to say no to Hitchcock would be a big mistake. He would take things like that at times as personal insults. So she went to Alma, and at least this is what she told me. She said that she discussed it with her, and she said, Alma, I think the problem would be we would be duplicating the dynamic from the birds. And I am not a mainline Philadelphia socialite type. And Alma agreed. And she was the one who actually broached it with her husband saying, I think we should look for a different actress and a different type. And of course, they cast Diane Baker, who was perfect. And I actually got Marnie quite well. But I thought that was it, that Lachette was canny enough to know the best way to handle Hitchcock. The Hitchcocks were very fond of her, and she stayed on their party list. Certainly a shout out has to be given to Robert Burks and George Tomasini, who did the cinematographer and editing, respectively. Both had long careers with Hitchcock, though, so were very well respected for their work outside of the director as well. You talked about some of the editing in The Diner, and Thomasini's editing was influential on future editors, especially his use of what is called the axial cut, which is a series of cuts dramatizing their character's reaction to something. And here, especially at The Diner, where Melanie is looking out the window as the fire starts. Oh, yeah. No, that's a wonderfully edited moment. But Thomas, he he was just superb. And of course, too, with Hitchcock's preparation being so complete, that was a great, if you will, incredibly ideal area for an editor. What a perfect relationship with a director to have. And with Alma, who, of course, had so much impact on the way Hitch's movies were cut at this time. And with Robert Burke's, There you've got your connection to uh, Byron Haskin and the Naked Jungle because, of course, Burks was the uh, special effects DP at Warner Brothers back when Byron Haskin and Don Siegel were uh, shooting all their miniatures. Should be noted, there's no music except source music, like when Melanie, I think, plays the piano or something. Instead, it's all sound effects. Hitchcock used the electroacoustic mixture troptonium, which was the predecessor to the synthesizer, and he commissioned Salah and Remy Gassman to design an electronic soundtrack. So they're credited with electric sound production and composition, and Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the score for many Hitchcock films, is credited as sound consultant. Well, I think that was such a brilliant decision. You did not want the sound of the birds, the screech of the birds, their cries, to be in any way complimented or overwhelmed or what have you by a classic orchestral score. That would have been ridiculous. And the audience wouldn't have been able to hear the birds. It was the same way in Mirror Window. We talked about that last week. There's no music there. And all the sound are people talking across the way or the sounds from traffic and things of that nature. Not loud enough that it distracts you, but also it's always there. Yes. I I remember 
of, of all people, Boris Karloff had a problem with the fact that there was a score to Lifeboat. And he mentioned mm-hmm. it specifically in a couple of interviews. Oh, that's interesting that he brought that up. Then he's like, oh, I hear these people in the middle of the ocean and some, somewhere uh, there's the Philadelphia Orchestra coming up. <laughs> you know, all this music. He had made a similar comment about a movie he was in, The Lost Patrols. I think Hitchcock making his very deliberate choices as far as what should and should not be uh, scored uh, just showed how astute he really was. And I like the score to life. Um, you mentioned special effects. And I do think they are a bit dated. The match shots, especially because you can tell them quite easily. But it's still a lot of fun. The majority of the birds seen in the film are real, although it is estimated that more than $200,000 was spent on the creation of mechanical birds. And the combination of both, I think with the mechanicals, the one shot that I think it was really, I don't want to say obvious, but when you understand how the movie was made, you go, okay, there's the mechanical. When the little girl is thrown to the ground, when they're running from the school and the uh, bird is on her back, picking at her head. But other than that, I think the use of the mechanicals and the artificial birds that were used in the sparrow scene where they were forced down the chimney and all of that. I guess they were made out of foam or something. I think it's all blended very, very well. Of course, we know there were artificial birds on the jungle gym, but boy, it's just such a dire image. And that sequence with Tippy Hedren, where she's sitting there and oblivious to the crows gathering behind her. And then that wonderful shot when it's the reverse and she stands up and she sees all of them. That's just terrific. You know, that's the essence of what a wonderful uh, director he was. The Birds received mixed reviews upon its initial release. Mostly Crawler of the New York Times was positive, calling it, quote, a horror film that should raise the hackles on the most courageous and put goose pimples on the toughest high. But Stanley Kaufman of the New Republic called the Birds, quote, the worst thriller of Hitchcock's that I can remember, unquote. Andrew Serres of the Village Voice praised the film writing, drawing from the relatively invisible literary talents of Daphne du Maurier and even Hunter. Alfred Hitchcock has fashioned a major work of cinematic art. And the film ranked second on Cahiers to Cinema's Top 10 Films of the Year list in 1963, or as Woody Allen says, thank God for the French. Yes. Uh, with that, here's more information about the movie. It cost $3.3 million to make and made $11.3 at the box office. At the 36th Academy Awards, Ub Urix was nominated for Best Special Effects, but lost to the only other nominee, Emil Cosa Jr. for Cleopatra. And this was the last Hitchcock film to get an Oscar nomination. In 2016, The Birds was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in its national film registry. It's the only Hitchcock movie to have been featured in Mad Magazine. It was called For the Birds, issue 82, October 1963. There, it is revealed that the birds are controlled by Burt Lancaster as revenge for his not having won an Academy Award that year for Birdman of Alcatraz. When audiences left the UK premiere at the Odeon, Leicester Square, London, they were greeted by the sound of screeching and flapping birds from loudspeakers sitting in the trees to scare them further. There was a sequel for television, The Birds 2, Plans In, came out in 1994. Director Rick Rosenthal removed his name from the credits and used the Hollywood pseudonym Alan Smithy. Tippi Edren returned in a sporting role, but not as her original character. 
This was the film debut of Tippi Hedren. And now for Hitchcock's trademark appearance is at the start of the movie as a man walking two dogs out of the pet shop. The dogs were actually his white terriers named Joffrey and Stanley. So with that, let's get to my selection, and that is The Naked Jungle. However, first we're going to take a moment and then listen to a promo from a fellow podcaster. And while we are doing that, take the time to like, follow, or comment on the podcast. History in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. Welcome back for some information about the film. The Naked Jungle is an American adventure film released in 1954. It was directed by Byron Haskin and written by Ronald McDougall, Ben Maddow, and Philip Jordan, adapted from the 1937 short story Leinigan, or maybe Leinigen. I don't think in the movie they ever quite agreed on how to pronounce his name, but Leinigan versus the Ants by Carl Stevenson. It stars Eleanor Parker, Charlton Heston, Abraham Sofair, William Conrad, Romo Vinson, Douglas Valley, John Dirks, and Leonard Strong. Christopher Leinigan, an American, has spent 15 years building his cocoa plantation in South America. He is finally married, but it's marriage by proxy. When his bride, Joanna, arrives, he thinks she's not right for the plantation and angry that she is a widow and not a virgin. They have a tempestuous relationship, and Joanna is going to be sent back to the States and the marriage annulled until a two-mile-wide, 20-mile column of soldier ants or Morabunta, which devours anything in their way, will intersect the plantation, and Christopher must fight them to save what he has built up. So what do you think of the pairing of the two films? How do you think they fit together, and what are some similarities and differences? Well, this is nature on the attack with both movies, but The Naked Jungle, again, is based on a at least more familiar phenomenon that can be pointed to, whereas the birds was a unknown phenomenon. There was that incident with the birds attacking the small town, but it was a freak incident. The Naked Jungle is about something that, in fact, does occur, at least on uh, <laughs> every few years schedule. I think also the naked jungle, the idea, too, of something that is harmless until it enjoins itself. And here we have ants by the billions coming after you as opposed to a flock of birds, not just a single bird, thousands of them. We're helpless against something like that because they these are animals that outnumber us. And I like the Naked Jungle very, very well. In fact, I did a commentary on it, edition of it with Justin Humphreys. Oh, good. Not many people know about this movie, so it's great that you've heard of it before. And I agree with you with this idea that it's what do you do when these animals band together? I mean, it sort of seems silly at first. They're only ads, but there's two-mile-wide, 20-mile column of soldier ads, and they are deadly. I do think it's interesting that they both sort of start out the same way. In The Birds, Melanie Daniels sees a flock of birds above her that strikes her as odd in San Francisco. And in The Naked Jungle, 
Joanna's attention is called to a flock of birds flying in an odd manner, and she is told that it looks like they are fleeing something. And both have love stories that were not in the short story. But while The Bird starts out as a romantic comedy, The Naked Jungle starts out as a romantic drama, and the romance dominates the film. In fact, the ants aren't even referred to until 50 minutes into the film. And so the attack isn't until like the last 20 minutes, Act 3 is the attack. I suppose you might question that the only way these issues in both films could be resolved is through the death of others. But almost all art has that as a prerequisite in some ways. Virginia Woolf said, someone has to die in order that the rest of us should value life more. It's contrast. Particularly with The Naked Jungle, you the death of John Durkees, who is abusing his crews and his men on his plantation. He and Heston are in conflict about that. In fact, Heston wants to kill him. Ants take care of that. Yeah. Two, with an actor like Durkees, who could so personify that. Of course, as Boris Karloff's sinister assistant in Abbott Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or in The Thing, he was a marvelously effective actor, but he was a big man. And you needed someone who was towering, even over someone as physically large as Charlton Heston, to make the point because he is brought down by the tiny ants. And if they can take care of him, they can devour anybody. And I think that was a very clever visual choice on Byron Haskin and George Powell's part, very much so. When did you first see the film and what did you think of it? Oh, gosh. Again, that was a TV thing. I'd read the short story in school. I don't think I saw the movie. Probably I was about 12 or 13. And that was kind of one of those back in the days when they would have the matinee movie every uh, weekday at four o'clock or so in on uh, stations in Philadelphia. I think that's where I first saw The Naked Jungle. I'm sort of like you. I can't remember when I first saw it. In the sixth grade, the story, Lonigan versus the Ants, was in our English reader, but it wasn't assigned. I just read it and I loved it. So when the movie adaptation appeared on television, I had to see it. I loved it as a child in the 60s, and there are things I really like about it now. But I think there are also some issues that I'm sure we'll get into. What are some of your favorite scenes? Well, that's the thing is that anyone thinks that they're going to be seeing Empire of the Ants is going to be intensely disappointed because it's a realistic movie. There's no gigantism or bird-eye Gordonism or anything like that to it. The story unfolds in a very natural way. So the conflict with the ants, the battle of the ants really isn't until the last 25, 30 minutes of the movie. The scene where Heston is washed away by the floodwaters while he's fighting the ants is just fantastic. I love that moment. Two, I love the reveal. And of course, I did my commentary with Justin and he is the George Powell expert. But we just were both so in sync about the reveal that Heston is essentially a virgin himself, which is why he is so deeply offended that Eleanor Parker is not because she's a widow. And she makes a very pointed comment, a piano needs to be played. That's great stuff. She is so defiant and right up to his, as Heston used to say, his Roman nose. She has so much inner strength. I love her performance. And in fact, it helps carry the movie. And of course, who better to announce the coming of the killer ants than William Conrad? Well, I think you've had a lot of the best scenes there. For me, almost all revolve around the ants. Like you say, the discovery of the evil plantation owner, as opposed to Leinigan, who is a good plantation owner, but also at the dam and the bridge 
image where the person running the sluices has fallen asleep and suddenly is covered with ants. I also like the little scene where the ants start floating across the river on leaves. People are saying the water will stop them. Well, the water didn't stop them. And you sort of feel like, oh, they're coming across on the leaves. You're not going to be able to stop them. They're going to find a way around everything. Oh, yes. That shot of that is it's brilliant because it also goes to the uh, communication power of insects to each other and all of these things that insects are capable of, which we're completely oblivious to because we don't think about it. There are actually some insects when they go on this sort of thing where the ones at the lead just go into the water and drown and then the other insects just walk over them to get to the other side. Yep. The direction is by Byron Haskin. It sounds like you're very familiar with him. Do you have any favorite films by him? And what do you think of his directing here? Well, I think he did a wonderful job here. And of course, this was one of his great George Powell collaborations, which includes War of the Worlds. But Haskin came up, Hal Wallace, when he left Warner Brothers and set up his production company at Paramount, brought Haskin uh, with him. So he did several movies, Burt Lancaster, but directed a really terrific film noir called I Walk Alone with Lancaster that I think is just wonderful. But a personal favorite, of course, War of the Worlds stands as an iconic classic. I love Robinson Crusoe on Mars. I think that's a wonderfully made movie and stars a very dear friend, Paul Mantee. And I think it, that movie is just absolutely terrific. But Haskin came up through Warner Brothers, the special effects department, and was there doing second units and miniature work for films like Manpower and uh, Action in the North Atlantic, The Roaring Twenties, and as I said, working very closely with guys like Jim Lester and Don Siegel. They ground out miles and miles of film, a lot of it shot by Robert Burks. So Haskin was fully prepared when he finally started directing features, but his own background in special effects was so extensive that when it came time to do films with effects like The Naked Jungle, like War of the Worlds, he was completely and totally prepared. It didn't perplex him for one moment. You've pretty much covered his career as a whole. He's not a great director. He's not Hitchcock or Ford or uh, people like that. But he does have his place in film history in three areas. And you talk about the special effects. That's where he came up. He worked on movies that one wouldn't necessarily consider special effects movies, but he got Oscar nominations for four films, uh, Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, The Seahawk, The Seawolf, and Desperate Journey. And he shared an award from the Academy for the development of a rear screen projection technique. And you mentioned I Walk Alone when he became a director in the 40s. He made what I call two second-tier film noirs, which have become classics, and one of them is I Walk Alone, and the other is Too Late for Tears. And pop art covered Too Late for Tears by pairing it with Dumb and Dumber, which are two films about finding a bag full of money. A bag full of money. There you go. Yep. Yeah. And finally, he started teaming up with George Powell and directed two semi-classic sci-fi films, The War of the Worlds and Robinson Crusoe on Mars, both very entertaining. And I agree with you on Robinson Crusoe on Mars. He's a solid director, maybe not an inspired one, but he does have a place in film history. And this movie may be saddled with some issues he couldn't quite overcome, but when it gets to the ads, that's his blue, and he really comes through. Pal was under contract to Paramount, and the talent pool was going to be, can I find a director? And of course, also Conquest of Space. Right. That can I find a director who is going to be in a comfort zone with this type of material? Pal's alternate for uh, When Worlds Collide was Rudolph Maté, 
who, of course, had been a director of photography. He wanted someone with that technical background. Of course, Mate was responsible for the brilliant photography of Hitchcock's foreign correspondent. I think that was a priority for George Powell, that he wanted someone who would not be flummoxed in any way, shape, or form with the special requirements of the kinds of movies that he was going to be making. And of course, every single one of those films, you mentioned the Academy Award nominations, those happened because of the miniature work that Haskin accomplished. Every single thing that he did with Powell, of course, the miniature work, my God, the War of the Worlds, I mean, is extraordinary and very extensive. 1978, Martin Scorsese listed the film as among his 100 random pleasures in a section of films which, quote, are not good, they're guilty, but there are things in them that make you like them, that make them worthwhile. I think he has a point there. The screenplays by Philip Jordan, Randall Dougal, and Ben Maddow. And how do you feel about the screenplay? Well, I think the screenplay is quite good. And you're talking about adapting a, a short story. Ronald McDougall, of course, very famously adapted Mildred Pierce at Warner's and did a wonderful job. Now, Ben Maddow, of course, would end up being blacklisted, was out of work for a very long time until he came back with a movie called The Way West for uh, Andy McLaughlin. Now, Phil Jordan, of course, lots of controversy about him because he's front for blacklisted writers. Some people are like, well, did he write this? Did he write that or whatever? I think he actually wrote a lot more movies than they want to give him credit for because he did do that job of fronting for blacklisted writers. But he was very close to George Powell and worked on an awful lot of his projects for him, sometimes credited, sometimes not. Phil Jordan was a superb screenwriter, and all you have to do is look at, say, something like El Cid or Men in War, The Man from Colorado, and he was just terrific. I think that Jordan really is responsible, if you will, for the steel spine of the naked jungle. I don't know where Ben Maddow fits in, but Ronald McDougall would have been the perfect guy to introduce this wonderful love story that helped drive the movie along. Because you you need a contrast to Heston's character. Just this guy in the jungle being stoic would have just been interminably boring. Do you think that the screenplay is often a doozy and somewhat overripe Freudian melodrama? And there is that line, a piano plays better if it has already been played. I have a theory, and I can't prove it, and that is that Joanna, in the original story ideas early on, was not a widow but a prostitute, which would be a reason why she would want to leave New Orleans. And this would also give a stronger reason as to why Leinigan would not want her because she isn't a virgin. And then they eventually soften this aspect a lot. I don't know. It's just what I suspect because it's not unusual for mail-order brides to have a background like that. There are also aspects of it that today we call problematic. It reflects something of the time in certain ways. The attitude toward the locals or original peoples there is quite Rudyard Kipling, white man's burden, and it feels condescending and embarrassing at times. American felt it was a superior nation and whites were a superior race. So this sort of imperialism was in movies from the beginning. You can forget the Tarzan movies, but Melanigan says things like these people were uncivilized and that he brought civilization to them. And he's going to stop the ants because he brought them civilization and he's not going to take that away from them. It's a little difficult to know how to react that sort of thing. Well, now, quite honestly, the reassessment of movies like 
the naked jungle within this context to me is pretty ridiculous. I don't agree with any of that because the thing is this, it accurately reflects the attitudes of the characters at that time. That's what counts. And I think we either accept it or some folks don't, but no, it doesn't make me squirm at all. To me, it sounds exactly the way those people would have behaved and the opinions they would have voiced at the time the story takes place. There perhaps is a bit of irony here because for Britain, they've been slowly losing their colonies at this time. And England was making films glorifying their place in the world as very nostalgic cartoons, Zulu, Lawrence of Arabia, Flame Over India, though there was some revisionist thinking seeping in. But the U.S. was just starting to hit the heights of its imperialism and slowly making inroads both in Asia, where the U.S. lost terribly, and in South and Central America, where they couldn't stop and still can't stop interfering in these countries and supporting corrupt governments. So in one way, it isn't actually a accurate reflection of white men's views in the U.S. at the time. We have to bring these countries up to our standards. But wouldn't that have been the attitude during the time in which the story takes place? Well, it would have been the attitude of white males. It might not be the attitude of Hispanics and other South American people and the aborigines who live there. Well, that's true. Well, that's not what the movie was about. So again, that's kind of looking at it within that lens to do the naked jungle, say from the other side, from the side of the natives and the plantation workers, everything else, that would have been a terrific movie also. And it would give us an entirely different insight. But you're talking about Philip Jordan, and he was, yes, a bit on what people would call unscrupulous. He was the screenwriter, as I understand it, who often came in at the end and put finishing touches on a screenplay, so he is in demand. His most famous work, in some ways, is the play Anna Lucasta, which is noteworthy because it was originally written about a Polish-American family, but because he couldn't get it produced, the ANT or American Negro Theater produced it with an all-black cast, and it was a hit. But he shortchanged a number of people involved, including writers he hired to rewrite it at the production company at the ANT. As you said, he also served as a front for blacklisted writers, but whether it was because of political beliefs or as is more likely, he could hire them cheaper, is unclear. I don't know that, that he had any particular political sympathies. It was the dynamic at the time, and he was kind of a uh, opportunistic cat, that's for sure. There were quite a few, including Ben Maddow, who was behind several of Jordan's later scripts in the, uh, in the 50s, that said, hey, look, you know, Phil saved us. In a lot of ways, you know, you dance with the devil you've made your deal with. And that was, I think, the case with Phil Jordan. But I think now that has gotten so overemphasized that it, in fact, has taken away from his own actual accomplishments. It's his own damn fault because he got so well known for somebody who would farm out material or to put his name on scripts that he had not written, that it has diluted all of the scripts that he did write. He did claim, quote, in all my pictures, there's the theme of the loneliness of the common man, that he has an inner resource that allows him to survive in society. He doesn't cry. He doesn't beg. He doesn't ask favors. He lives and dies in dignity. Well, certainly before I, I had said the man from Colorado, I meant the man from Laramie, two very different movies. And certainly in a movie like that, where Jimmy Stewart 
is just ground down to a pulp before the end of the movie. It's also true, I think, in El Cid and also in Men in War. So I can see that very much so in Jordan's work. But he did believe in the hero. What he believed in most was beating the snot out of the hero and leaving him bloody and just a heap of rags before he could pull himself together to defeat the villain or whatever evil was befalling everybody. There was no easy road in any of the scripts that Phil Jordan wrote, that is for sure. Do you have a favorite performance? I know you've mentioned Eleanor Parker. Heston is very, very good in this movie, but Heston at this time, and this would be before his favorite film, Will Penny, that his stoic approach. That was the reason he was hired. That's why they wanted him to play Andrew Jackson. You know, everybody makes too much about Moses, but Heston was a fine actor, but he was unyielding actor. And when he did finally go to emotional parts and things like that, as I said, in some of the later films, uh, even in something like Planet of the Apes, it was always a surprise and a very pleasant one. That's why I think he is so good in the naked jungle because he has to bend and show his other side to Eleanor Parker. Well, this is perhaps where we will have to agree to disagree. And I get in trouble on Facebook all the time when I talk about Charlton Heston. I think he's one of the worst actors ever to become a major star. My favorite quote about him is from an English actor, though I've never been able to find it again. They said, Oh, Hollywood, that's that place where they give people like Charlton Heston awards for acting. And I'm sorry, I just think he's terrible. He's just over the top and his intensity is all wrong. I think it's Eleanor Parker that holds it all together. She's much more subtle and gives a much stronger performance. She was a major star for a while and received the Oscar nominations for Caged, Detective Story, and Interrupted Melody. She gets top billing here because Heston wasn't yet a star and wouldn't do the Ten Commandments for a couple of years. Sometimes it's fun when you watch these movies and you go, Charles Heston gets second billing? How did that happen? Eleanor Parker, her son is a good friend. Paul Clemens is a good friend of mine. She was at Warner Brothers for a very long time and completely wasted there. They did not know what to do with her. And she was obviously beautiful and she could act and what have you. But they put her in real kind of second tier features for a long time. The Mysterious Doctor and films like that. And then when she did a movie with someone like Humphrey Bogart, it was not a particularly good one because she was in Chain Lightning. And then when she broke from Warner's and don't forget a Paramount, just absolutely unbelievable in The Man with the Golden Arm as Frank Sinatra's wife who pretends to be crippled. She was just tremendous in that. And of course, Cage and Detective Story. And she was just the perfect opposite to leading men like Kirk Douglas. And like Sinatra, she did several films with him. And like Heston, she could absorb who they were and their strength and fight against it. Did it brilliantly well. She was wonderful. And it should be mentioned that when we talk about the love story and the reason why it's there is that the female audience was very important at this time. And so studios would add a love story to almost any movie that didn't have one in the source material. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s when movie makers lost interest in trying to appeal to the female audience. But you'll see things like King Solomon's Mines, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and other films like that where they put in a love interest because they wanted that female audience. Well, also part of it, too, when you had really enormously 
strong female stars, certainly in the 1930s through the World War II period. Also, too, just from a marketing standpoint, a man and a woman in a clinch on a movie poster, because the feeling was for families and couples that women made the decision as to the movies to see. In essence, that was probably correct. I'm sure it was correct. I think that's a very good point. Ernest Laszlo did the cinematography. We should mention him here because he does a really nice job. It's a very beautiful film and especially very effective when you realize that it was made not on location, but at the studio and in Florida. Yep. I did say when I first started watching it, I said, hmm, I bet they filmed that in Florida. He started out as a camera operator, worked himself up to cinematographer. At first, his films were not major, but eventually he broke through to work on studio prestige films, receiving eight Oscar nominations with such films as Judgment at Nuremberg and Winning for Ship of Fools. Well, he had a very good relationship with Stanley Kramer. And boy, he shot one of my childhood favorites. Ernie Laszlo shot Fantastic Voyage. And that is very notable for its cinematography and for its look. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But again, when you have a director like Byron Haskin, these are old hands on a sailing ship. There isn't a knot they don't know. There isn't a sail they can't unfurl and repair if need be. That's the thing is that you were talking about two movies, and of course, Alfred Hitchcock's in, in his own category, where the work is being done by real old school movie professional. Maybe it's not always experimental, although The Birds is certainly more experimental than The Naked Jungle. However, there is, if you will, a level of the accomplishment that the movie itself is not going to fall below. This is studio filmmaking. Maybe it's not necessarily as groundbreaking or as earth-shattering as, say, something experimental that might come along later, but it's glorious in itself, and I think needs to be recognized for that fact. At the time, Variety said, there's a lot of tried and true romantic drama formula in the naked jungle, an interesting feature that mixes in jungle adventure with a science fiction touch dealing with an invading army of ants that think. Not exactly accurate, but I can see what it means. The New York Times said it is a tight dramatic conflict between Mr. Heston as the plantation master and Eleanor Parker as the wife he has imported. Sight unseen, a real psychological situation between an egoist and his male older bride. This becomes a quite interesting conflict. Credit Philip Jordan and Ronald McDougall for the script, which is literate as well as dramatic, a comparatively uncommon thing. But with that, here's some more information about the film. It made $2.3 million at the box office. I don't know what it cost to make, but my guess is that this was a very satisfactory box office return. William Conrad, who has starred as Leinigan in adaptations of Stevenson's story for the radio programs Escape and Suspense, was given the role as the district commissioner because of that. Unique sound of the ants devouring everything in their path was created by swirling a straw and a glass of water with crushed ice, which was then amplified. And much of the Rio Negro, Amazon jungle, riverscape, as well as the bridge dynamiting and sluice scenes are second unit stock footage shot in Florhome, Florida. And starting to close out, I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest your audience. If you want the animals attacking two really wonderful television movies, one is pretty readily available. Uh, the other you might have to hunt for. Trapped, starring James Brolin as a fellow who's trapped in a department store with killer Dobermans. 
chasing him. And then also a movie I just adore, A Cold Night's Death, starring Robert Culp. I remember that. He's in the Tundra experimental station with the monkeys that turn on him. And if you want just, I think, a really good animal thriller, a movie that does not get, I think, anywhere near as much credit as a personal favorite of a good friend of mine, Richard Franklin's Link. Pretty thought-provoking stuff about animal experimentation. I've chosen three movies as well. They're Creeping Up on You is the last segment from the omnibus film Creep Show from 1982, written by Stephen King. In it, a wealthy businessman played by E.G. Marshall, who lives in a sterile and OCD clean penthouse, treats people like cockroaches. So in retaliation, he finds himself and his home invaded by hordes of cockroaches. From 1954, we get the classic sci-fi horror film, Them, a Cold War parable about the creation of giant ants due to atomic bomb testing in New Mexico. It's surprisingly well-written and acted with Edmund Gwynn and is a lot of fun. And one of Sam Elliott's early films is the 1972 Frogs, about a family celebrating a birthday at an estate on an island when nature in all its animal forms began rebelling and killing off people. The ending scene is with Bray Milan, who at the end of his career made little but these types of horror films, is thumped to death by frogs. Not a good movie, but a fun and entertaining one. Yeah, but a great poster. Yes. And, uh, don't forget that Them was directed by Gordon Douglas, uh, really, when he was really cooking there at Warner Brothers. I'm always surprised how entertaining and smart that film is, because it's about giant ants, but it's very entertaining, very well done. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? Going back to all the, the commentaries and the documentaries and stuff, we have a really terrific set coming from film masters, film detective of six Roger Cormans that were previously public domain that have been totally restored. Howard Berger and I did the commentary on Ski Troop Attack, which is married with Beast from the Haunted Cave. And then I wrote a booklet that's in that one. And I also did a commentary on The Terror with Steve Haberman, wrote the booklet on that. Both these movies are paired with other films, and there's a three-part series about the creation of Corman's film group with his brother, Gene Corman. And in fact, we just had a release today from Film Masters, speaking of animals attacking, of Giant Heel Monster and the Killer Shrews. Again, totally restored, beautiful Blu-rays. And we did a wonderful uh, documentary for that release on director Ray Kellogg, who was a fantastic special effects man, won the Oscar for Tora, Tora, Tora. Upcoming releases later this year, The Best of Times with Kurt Russell and Robin Williams and also Paint Your Wagon and The Pawnbroker for a big special uh, Sidney Lumet project. Fantastic. Well, all this my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Caster screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, the Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. The previous episode was with film lover and blogger James S. Wilson, where we discussed two films about voyeurs and voyeurism, Hitchcock's Rear Window and Koslowski's A Short Film About Love. 
The next episode will be the Halloween episode. As is my Halloween tradition, my guest will once again be film lover and blogger Lisa Leahy, where we will discuss The Ring and Night of the Demon, two films about passing a curse from one person to another. So once again, thank you, Courtney for being a guest on Pop Art. Well, no, this was uh, terrific. Thank you for inviting me.